play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. Cairo, Seattle. Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, Duff McKagan. A little tenderness, can't you feel us? Oh, tenderness, won't you please come on down? Duff is the original basis for Guns N' Roses, and he continues to tour with the band today. And because life is magic, as I was driving into the studio to interview Duff, Sweet child of mine came on the radio. Oh, it's it's really, I mean, it probably is on every morning when I'm driving to work because it's on all the time. But, you know, coincidences, they reveal themselves. It's magic. Duff has also played in multiple supergroups, and he just released a solo album called Tenderness, which is what you are listening to in the background right now. Oh, tenderness, can't you feel it around? Duff was a millionaire in his 20s. And he now admits that he had no idea how to manage his money. So in his mid-30s, eager to understand money management, he enrolled in college to study business and finance. But for many years before that, Duff was living that stereotypical rock and roll lifestyle. What was eating like on the road? Yeah, I didn't eat on the road until after I got sober. I only drank. Okay. Yeah. No when eating. you drink as much as I did, you just don't eat. I don't Literally suggest no that. food? No food. Duff's last meal is honestly one of my favorites that anyone has ever brought to the show because it is so unexpected. When Duff was 19 years old, he worked at a restaurant and he loved the family meal or staff meal served at every shift so much that is what he chose to eat for his last meal. So producer Laura and I got to go to Canlis. I say got to because this is not a restaurant that I've ever spent my own money at before. This is arguably Seattle's fanciest restaurant. And we went to have family meal with the staff, including owner Mark Canlis. We're just sort of elevated in general, and family meal follows that. It's like if we're going to go through all of this care and prep for you, the guest, we should probably do the same thing for our staff. I will tell you all about that family meal, but first, my conversation with Duff McKagan. A Do you want to wear headphones? Yeah. Okay. Even if you've never seen Duff McKagan, if he is a complete stranger to you, if you walked past him on the street, you would know that he's a rock star. He is tall and lean and handsome. He's covered in tattoos. At least one of them is a requisite skull. And Duff is 55 years old, but he has got all of his hair and it's shaggy and bleach blonde. And when he came into the studio, he was wearing tight black jeans and a black tank top. And he gets to walk around knowing that he was the inspiration for Duff Beer on The Simpsons. Axel introduced me as the king of beers at this famous show we did that was on MTV. So right after this, it's like 89, I guess, late 88, before we knew what branding was or any of that stuff. And there was no adult cartoons then in 88. We got this call. Somebody's making an adult cartoon. We thought it was a college art project. They wanted to name the beer. They just asked if it was okay. Duff. Because I was Duff the King of Beers. Yeah. Right? And the band was blowing up at that point. I was like, I don't care. They wanted, fine. Nobody's going to see it. It became The Simpsons. 
this huge thing. And That's so, so crazy. So I, I write about this in the in the book. I thought it was a foregone conclusion. Everybody knew this. But it became like the Simpsons denied it. Because I, th- I guess maybe they thought I was going to try to come after them for money. So did you only find out that it was the <laughs> Simpsons when you watched the show and were like, hey, I, that beer's named after me? I didn't have a TV. Okay. So no, people would tell me. Like God, I guess I should have asked for like a nickel for each time, you know. But but I didn't, and that's on me. I'm never going to go back and sue them for the. No. But I think that was their worry when my book came out in 2011. So they actually came out and denied that story, and I was like, "You guys don't have to do that." I'm not going to sue you. I'm not going to sue you. It's fine. But it's you know it's a different world in L.A. People do that kind of stuff, and. I'm not one of them. But that's the story. You write this book about your life and all of these really dramatic things that happened to you. You almost died. And people yeah. are like, wait a minute. The beer's named after you, man? <laughs> totally. <laughs> that did happen. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense if you look back in the history and like you see the, the MTV live show we did and, and me introduced. And it was only really like two months after that came out that we got this call to name the beer Duff Beer. Axel Rose called Duff the king of beers. Because Duff drank a lot of beer. And a big part of his story is getting sober. Duff was motivated by a near-death experience when he was 30 years old. And, of course, now you don't drink beer because you've been sober I do not for drink beer. 20 no. years. Do you want to tell the story, kind of a, a brief version of what led you to age 30 to have a burst pancreas? Two half gallons of vodka a day. That'll do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's brief. <laughs> that is the brief history. Yeah. How did you get sober? I just bought a house, this dream home back here in Seattle. And uh, I rolled over. I woke up and I felt uncomfortable. The pain went from my guts down to my quad muscles. So I knew something was really wrong. And I couldn't make one more move to get to the phone to call 911. And I just laid there in this excruciating pain, not knowing what was going on. And my friend Andy came over to the house, my best friend. My car was in the garage. She knew I was home. My wallet and keys were downstairs. So I'm here. I'm downstairs going, where are you? And he came upstairs. And See, and the era of the drop-in. Nobody drops in anymore. You're lucky that he came by. Andy still drops in. Oh, good. Yeah. Good old Andy. Yeah. I live in this neighborhood where my doctor was two blocks away. His dad birthed all eight of us kids. Oh, wow. So the son took over the practice. And uh, they gave me two shots of Demerol. And it didn't work. And that's when I knew I was in real trouble. And they rushed me to Northwest Hospital. I had a burst pancreas. Now I get to be a doctor and tell you that the pancreas is full of acid that helps you digest your food. So when it burst, the pain that Duff was feeling, that was third degree burns on his internal organs from all of that acid. And that dripped all the way down to his quad muscles. Oh, yeah. No, you thought you were listening to a tasty food podcast, didn't you? So what they do usually before somebody dies from the shock of this, they, they open you up to let the steam out. Whoa. Good times. I would told them just to kill me because the pain was so bad. So it was just a good time. But I, I survived. But my mom, I'm the youngest of eight kids, she came in in a wheelchair because she had Parkinson's. And that vision of her coming in crying, and I saw that the order of things was wrong. I'm the youngest. I should be taking care of her. Yeah. And um, not the other way around. So there was a few things that happened in the hospital that were heavy signals. You're getting a second chance. Once they said I was going to live, and my doctor said to me, he said, your pancreas is going back down in size. Like, it's miraculous what's going on. And you've been given a second chance. And he said, don't F it up. 
they had a rehab for me to go to. After 12 days in there, I, I was done. Like, I was done. I don't need it. I'm good. I'm going to start living my life now. And uh, It really scared you into sobriety. Plus, I finally got a chance to be sober. I tried so many different ways. 28 and a half or so, I just thought, there's no cure for me. I'm going to die soon. You get to a point when you're in it that hard that you just don't care. Yeah. You know, well, this is my path. Knowing that I was sober and that I was going to get the second chance, I did everything that I only dreamed about doing. After two years of purposely not dating, trying to get himself straight, he met his wife on a blind date, and now they have two grown daughters. And Duff went back to school. You went to Seattle U to the Albert School of Business and Economics, and... Do you have a sheet on me? I made the sheet. It was my own handwriting. Okay. Well, yeah. I did right. my research. Nice. I'm not a dum-dum. Yeah. Neither are you because you went back to school. Yes. <laughs> and so I love this story. So you started this wealth management firm for musicians called yeah. Meridian Rock, yeah. which is genius. And this is to help rock stars, musicians manage their money. Just anybody, really. I mean, that was the original idea. But what I found out going through business school was it's not rocket science, but the terminology in investing and in finance is made just for those people. So a regular person who just went through high school, maybe went through college, we don't get taught what risk means or what a stock even is or a bond or yield or... And it's incredibly confusing to me. I have a really hard time with it. Right. At least you admit it. Most people were too embarrassed to admit it. You know, and I found that out. I was one of those. I had made money in my 20s and I was too embarrassed to, to say, I don't know anything about money. Meridian Rock was also, there was an educational arm in there. Like, it's okay to ask any questions. And I'm sure coming from you instead of a guy in a suit is way less intimidating and people feel like they can talk to you like a normal person. Like, right now, I will explain what I'm wearing. I'm wearing a Shooter Jennings shirt that the sleeves are cut off. And I'm wearing some black jeans and Nike tennis shoes. Yeah. And a Prince hat, right? It's a cool Prince hat. The gold lame. Thank you. I dig it. Thank you. But I will walk into Canary Wharf in London. Like, that's a big finance. (laughs) Like like, this. Yeah, they're wearing Brooks Brothers. Yeah. And you don't have to wear Brooks Brothers. And I'm not going to wear Brooks Brothers to go into the meetings. I'm educated. I know what I'm doing. And you you take me for the way I am or or not. If If not, it's your loss. So I don't play the game. And I think I've gained trust because I am one of the musicians. So that was the idea there. And it wasn't to take people's money. It was just really to educate people and help them with their investments. All right. So now you know a little bit more about the life of Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses. Let's talk about food. Let's. After the break, Duff McKagan shares his last meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. 
Go to visitkitsap.com slash your last meal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. If you like listening to Your Last Meal, you might like watching my new TV show, The Nosh with Rachel Bell. We just wrapped up season one, so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at CascadePBS.org. In episode one, I convince an East Coast skeptic that Seattle now has fantastic bagels. And in the season finale, we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of Seattle. Episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Okay. Let's talk about food, 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 right. food. Okay. We're just going to dive into the main question. What would your last meal be? So I thought about this. That's a heavy question, but it doesn't have to be. I moved to L.A. in 1984. I was a cook here in Seattle. I was a pastry chef. I worked in a bakery for so long. So I, my resume was good. At 19 years old, I could get a job at any restaurant. So I moved to L.A. I got a job at the Black Angus. That was the first kind of place I saw. My brother, had he was going to Cal State Northridge. He had worked there, so he said, man, check that place out. They might have an opening. So I would literally just drove in pulled into the parking lot. You drove straight into the Black Angus parking lot? Totally. And got a job. They needed a prep cook like that minute. So I started there. But that was, my point to that is, is 84, the whole kitchen staff was either Mexican or Central American. So this is, go back in history. So Sandinista, Sandinistas were happening in El Salvador. There was all that. Like I worked with a professor from El Salvador. He was a line cook. Yeah. Because he had to get out. They, they were getting rid of intellectuals. Oliver North got involved. You know, we were giving arms to the rebels and all that stuff. So you get to learn history while you're working. Like this guy Stanley, not his real name, professor from El Salvador, working as a line cook. But they all spoke Spanish. I learned restaurant Spanish. I got immersed into this, like, Spanish world. So we get our employee meal, staff meal. So you didn't get the steak. You didn't get the, you know, it was uh, teriyaki chicken. And some rice or a potato. Every day the same? Same thing. Okay. So the guys I worked with, they were from these, you know, wonderful food places, Mexico and Central America. And so they taught me this meal, uh, which was the teriyaki chicken. We'd take that. Slice avocado on it. This is before the big avocado craze. Way before. No avocado toast yet. None of that. Pineapple. Jalapenos. So you're doing like al pastor with teriyaki chicken. Killer. And I'm eating, I'm like, you can't put a pineapple with a chicken and avocado and jalapeno. That was a new taste for me. And it was the best bite. If you have a bite of each one of those things in one bite, it, the flavor that you can do teriyaki chicken, you can do barbecue chicken, you can do, do some flavor on the chicken though. So I've made this meal for my family. It's one of our favorite things we do as a family, me making this meal. My family knows the history of this meal for me. And my girls make this for their friends. Oh, now. they do? It's spread out. Is it always teriyaki chicken when you do it at this home? It's teriyaki or barbecue. Okay. We, we mix it up here and there. And in a tortilla? No. Okay. No, you just get a bite of each thing. So you get some jalapeno, you get some pineapple, avocado, and a piece of the chicken. That's one bite. Don't miss one of those things. I won't. My last meal would be that because hopefully 
my family would be with me because we eat that meal together. But if not, if I was going to be executed or something, it was something more morbid last meal, then at least it would remind me of my family. I love that. Duff McKagan's last meal would be the perfect bite of teriyaki chicken, pineapple, jalapeno, and avocado. The family meal that he learned to make with his Latino coworkers at the Black Angus Steakhouse chain back in 1984. When I was a kid in California, I thought it was a really fancy restaurant. Totally. I did. I mean, we were eight kids. My dad's a fireman. So, yeah, any restaurant was fancy. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. We didn't go to restaurants. We're going to a restaurant tonight? It was like the Royal Fork, you know? Totally. Uh, killer. But, yeah, Black Angus. Uh, where did you grow up in California? I grew up in the Bay Area. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah Pleasanton. Yes. Yes. We have a connection with Black Angus. My family does because my brother worked there as a cook. Another brother, back when they used to have live music. At the Black Angus? 70s. My brother was in a touring Black Angus band for about what? seven years. Wait, did they only tour to Black Anguses? They'd play a month, move on to the next wow. one. So they did Pleasanton. They did every Black Angus in the country. They were writing original music. They put out a record, but that was a solid paycheck for a band. And were they the Black Angus band? There was a bunch of them back in the 70s. There yeah. was a ton of them. They played five sets a night. That's a lot. Yeah. Five sets a night. Five sets a night. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like this has to come full circle that you need to play in a Black Angus. I don't think they have live music. It's all, I don't even know what they do anymore. They'd let you in there. But that same one that I worked at is still there. It is? It's on um, Nordoff in Tampa this in Northridge. Northridge? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yep. In case you don't know what a family meal is, it is a meal a restaurant staff will eat together, usually before service starts. So you could be in a French restaurant, but if some of the cooks are from El Salvador family meal might be pupusas. I love pupusas. <laughs> if you're in Seattle, real good pupusas at the U District Farmer's Market on Saturdays. Anyway, I was thrilled that Duff chose family meal as his last meal because I have been fascinated with them for years. There are even cookbooks out there where restaurants reveal all of the family meals that they've made over the years so you could cook the recipes as well. And I think my fascination comes from the fact that I just always want to know what everybody's eating. Like, I want to know what all my coworkers are having for lunch. I'm always kind of in the fridge judging people. There's somebody here who's like in kindergarten. They bring a sandwich on white bread with one little slice of meat and one craft single in there. Yeah, I'm judging you. Uh, when I go camping, I always want to know what everybody's eating at the other campsites. So the idea of knowing what the chefs are eating, what the dishwashers are eating... That just seems really interesting to me. I also love the idea that people in the dining room are eating one thing and people behind the scenes are eating another. It's a chance for cooks to get creative, to show off their skills, to cook the food that they love, maybe something from their culture and share it with their buddies at work. And family meal happens at all kinds of restaurants, from chains like Black Angus to Seattle's most Tony fine dining restaurant, Canless. Canlis has been serving Seattle's well-coiffed since 1950. There's a dress code. There is a sweeping view of Sparkly Lake Union. There is valet. There are James Beard Awards. It's a four-course meal for $135. Someone will probably get engaged at the next table while you're there. And twice a day, they serve family meal. I'll talk. You keep eating. So, do you want me to hold my own microphone? Yeah. This is so weird. Hold on. You're your own <clears throat> Hello, self. That is Mark Canlis. He owns Canlis with his brother, Brian. And the brothers took over when their parents retired after running the restaurant for 30 years. And before that, their grandfather, Peter, opened the place back in 1950. 
So I'm sitting next to Mark in the Canlis dining room at 4 p.m., which is when 40 to 80 staff members will sit down to eat family meal. We're surrounded by cooks, servers, hosts, bartenders, dishwashers. Everybody is there. And Canlis takes family meal very seriously. They believe the staff deserves to eat a high-quality, well-made meal just as much as paying customers do. Who is actually making the food? How many people? And then how do they find the time when they're supposed to be prepping for service to make another meal? Yeah, for real. Um, It's planned into what we do. So there's a schedule. People know a week or two out, like, hey, I'm on family meal next Tuesday. They're planning ahead. They're ordering ahead. You just build it in. Either it's a priority or it isn't. It's a team. You're cooking for 50 people. It's a, it's a lot of work. So um, pastry always does the dessert, and then garmochade typically the salad, and the hotline typically makes some sort of protein or, or the main event. And if you see someone getting after like an awesome family meal, like you'll see people like, hey, can I do your prep for you? Can I meet something up for you? Or can I back you up? Like people get behind it, and so it's a team event. The one rule at family meal at Canlis is that you must sit down at a table in the dining room to eat. Like when we get new folks in, sometimes they're just not conditioned um, to sitting down and eating. Uh, They go off and hide in the corner. They go back to their spot in the kitchen and stand up over a cutting board. And it always drives me crazy. So you see the new guys. It's like, hey, get over here. Sit down. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just five or ten minutes, uh, it makes a difference. And I think it says something about respecting yourself and about taking care of yourself that frankly is like often way too overlooked in our industry so um just that simple act that sort of simple generous act of self like i'm gonna sit i'm gonna eat i'm gonna restore and take Mm -hmm. care of myself is really important okay so let's talk about the food uh it's all set up buffet style i don't know what we're eating we're eating this amazing salad of just nuts and tomatoes and cucumbers and little green this is green onion and I don't know, it looks great. And then uh, there's this crumble thing. What I'm going to start with is this desserty, warm, luscious cinnamon crumble thing. It looks like coffee cake. Is it, thank you. Is that what it is? Yeah, thank you. I was, I was, I was kneading sort of a... There was spiced lamb, tzatziki, fresh tomatoes and cucumbers, and a big stack of flatbread so you can make your own gyro. There was the aforementioned big salad, a big pan of roasted broccoli, the coffee cake... And my favorite was a super tasty eggplant and wild mushroom dish. These are hand of the woods. This is shallots and maybe some aubergine, some eggplant rather. You're so French. Yes, I'm so, yes. I've just given you half of my French vocabulary. The other word is bonjour. Bonjour aubergine. You don't know any bad words in French? I don't. I know one. Do you? Merde. It means <laughs> I know that, actually. We can't swear, but maybe in French. What do we, we swear in French? Married. Married. Yeah. Well, aubergine is a bad word when it comes to emojis these days. I don't know that. I don't know that emojis, that aubergine emojis are, are bad. Is, is that? Okay. Okay, so right there in the hallowed halls of the Canlis dining room, arguably the classiest dining room in Seattle, I explained to Mark what the eggplant emoji means. <laughs> <laughs> he he's like the last person left in America who doesn't know and I think he's in his 40s. It's not like, you know, it's not like he's like 80 years old or something, but he's asking the whole dining room. He's like, you know, shouting at the next table, "Do you know what the eggplant emoji is?" and everyone's nodding like, "Yeah, dude." Yeah, man. Yeah, we all know what it is. And for the record, I don't know why I was saying that it's bad, like it's a bad word. It's not a bad word. It's just a body part. 
It's just a body part. For sous chef John Courtney, family meal is a much needed break. I'm here all, all day. <laughs> all day, every day. <laughs> what time do you get here when you uh, Yeah, like 11 to midnight-ish, 12.30, depending on what's going on. Yeah, so all the sous chefs are here all day. This is maybe your only time to really sit down then in that 12 hours. Yeah, you know, so we have this big family meal that we put on at um, 4 o'clock every day for everybody. But I think a lot of the staff doesn't know that we have a sneaky AM family meal that we put up as well for all the AM people. So that's our first break that we get. We get to sit down. We have our little AM staff meal, which is sometimes the better of the two. I don't mean to brag, but uh, all the sous chefs cook the AM staff meal. Yeah, we get the two little breaks throughout the day. Part of what I love about family meal at a fine dining restaurant in particular is the juxtaposition. Canless guests dressed in their Sunday best are eating precious dishes like golden beets with amazake yogurt and lavender and warm mascarpone mousse with preserved cherry cake and tarragon oil. But behind the scenes, these cooks are whipping up rib-sticking comfort foods for themselves. We eat a bunch of ramen and we eat a bunch of fried chicken and uh, we do sandwich day and uh, we'll make lasagna. And What was your biggest success and what's been your biggest failure at Family Meal? Oh my gosh. Um... My biggest failure at Family Meal, without a doubt, I didn't think I was going to be asked this, but it's funny. I, uh, When I was an intern at a different restaurant 10 years ago in Colorado, I tried to make uh, Carolina-style pulled pork sandwiches. They called them vinegar sliders for months because they were just the worst vinegar-soaked pork that you've ever had. Um, so that was definitely the worst thing I've ever made. Um, and then the best thing, I don't know. That's a hard one. Maybe... Um, the fried chicken sandwiches are always a hit. People get crazy about that. And let's see. Uh, I think the bolognese is my go-to crowd pleaser. Yeah, the bolognese, for sure. And is there kind of a sense of pride of just like, they liked my food, they liked it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So we have uh, we have here, we call it the, the cannies. It's our once a year. We do awards for the whole restaurant. And we do a best family meal for the year. And it's definitely a coveted award to win. Have you ever made something that's special to you from your family or something from your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I first started working here, I made green chili stew. I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and that was just kind of like a big dish that I grew up eating. And I thought it would be kind of special to share that here with the rest of the team. Something that people up here near Canada have never eaten, you know. Let's get back to Mark. You're feeding 40 to 80 people twice a day. Is that just worked into the budget? Yep. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's expensive, but it might be the cheapest thing we do of all the expensive things we do. Like, it's so worth it. And yeah, it's worked into the budget. And obviously, we don't bring a lot of food in for that. So they're eating the same food you are as guests. Maybe the secondary cuts and that kind of stuff. Uh, the, The point is, it's the same caliber of food and nearly equal parts of love just go into it. We spend a little less time plating. But yeah, there's 120 people here, and so it's a lot to feed, lunch and dinner, and honestly, sometimes late night snack, And but it's something we're really proud of. It's really, is this, I don't wanna sound like super cheesy, but like it's, kind of, it's really beautiful. When you just see 50 people who have poured out themselves emotionally and physically, and you see them in a way that's like, here's something that I can give to them. Here's this bowl, this beautiful steaming bowl. And everyone just like dives into it. It is always a gift, one person to the other. It is always an act of love. It's always an act of sort of selfless, other-centeredness. 
what if all of us got free lunch at work? What if family meal extended to every industry? Like your work had to give you a little lunch. I wonder if it would be good, though, because the advantage at Canlis is that it's people from Canlis cooking for you. Yeah, they're food professionals. I don't know if I'd trust a blog writer or reporter to cook a fancy meal. Or if they would, they would probably just get it catered in. So judging on what we've had in this building before, it would be like those big plastic clamshells full of lunch meat and tiny rolls and some mustard packets. All right, when we come back, Duff shares the food that he eats before every performance. back to Duff, I have to boss you around a little bit. You know, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, blah, blah, blah. But really, please do leave a review because it helps new people find the podcast and that keeps us in business. Okay, that was quick and painless. I can't speak. Blameless? That was blick and blameless. See, wasn't that easy? All right, let's get back to Duff. Duff McKagan has been playing music for a long, long time. So he's got his pre-show routine down to a science. For vocalizing, I will right before we play. It's an old secret. Potato chips. What does that do? Has oil on it, so it coats your coats your throat. Really? Yeah. And so you, you don't said, ha- you don't eat a bunch. You know. You said salt and vinegar. Is that just because you like thing. that kind? Yeah. Okay. So just a few chips before, and then you sound extra. You do your vocal warm ups. Have some of those, and then yeah, just kind of coats your throat. That's so funny because in my mind it just sounds like you'd be like. Like you'd have like chips in your throat and like chips you in gotta your teeth. You got to make sure, yeah, drink, you know, drink yeah. something. Don't have any in your throat for okay. sure. Okay. Like almonds are not a thing to eat before you go out and sing because that almond stuff gets caught in your throat. Any s- singer, no pun intended, worth their salt uh-huh. will have a bag of potato chips. And that was Duff McKagan's last meal. His new solo album is called Tenderness. If you want to listen to it, I recommend paying for it. Artists deserve to get paid. That's me on my soapbox for a minute, but really just buy his album. It's good. Thanks to Mark Canlis and the staff for having us out for family meal. Make yourself a dinner reservation. Go to canlis.com and get a suit. You can't go in there in your gym shorts. It even says so on the website. And when we were sitting down for family meal, Mark told us this hilarious story about a family dinner that he had with his actual family when he was a teenager. And we love the story so much that we wanted you to hear it. So stick around to the very end of the episode. After I sign off, Mark Canlis will tell his story. And a reminder that Your Last Meal is now available in burger form. There is a Your Last Meal burger. I teamed up with Lil Woody's, which is a small Seattle burger chain. They have four locations. And on September 3rd, I will be at the Ballard branch of Lil Woody's from 7 to 9 because that is the first day that the burger will be on the menu. So you can go all week. It'll be on their menus from September 3rd to September 9th, but only on the 3rd will I be in Ballard. So it's a charcuterie burger that is based off the last meal of past guest Tiffany Thiessen. Uh, It's a patty stuffed with melty cheese. There's crispy prosciutto. There's a fig jam, arugula, shallot mayo. It's good. I've eaten it twice. I looked at the promo pictures that you took. Yes. Where you've, you've got the burger split in half, and it's just gooey, gooey, and it looks so, so good. I oh, can't yeah. wait to try it. If you're going to go on Instagram, you got to do a cheese pull. So we did the cheese <laughs> yes. pull. It's a requisite. Yeah, there's more information. There's a Facebook event page if you want to look that up uh, and hope to see you there. 
This episode was produced by Laura Scott and me, recorded by Aaron Mason, and theme music by Prom Queen. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. When we were kids, I was like 13 or 14. We all sit down to the dinner table. I remember so distinctly where we were. We were sitting in like our little breakfast nookie area, and mom brings out this lasagna. It's like just cheesy, delicious. We're so stoked, right? Three teenage boys. So we, we dive into this thing. And midway through the meal, mom starts like like giggling. She just kind of has this like hee-hee, and we're like, yeah, you know, what's that about? And then like tee-hee-hee, and then she like starts cracking. I'm telling the story about mom and the lasagna. So she starts giggling, and we're like, Mom, what's, what's up? She's like, it's nothing. Okay, so then further down the meal, she's full-on cracking up to herself. Like, she's like something is funny, and she can't, she can't contain it. So my older brother's like, no, seriously, Mom, like, come on. Like, she's like, well, I might have, I might have, I just, it's, I want to apologize in advance. I, I didn't know it would work, but anyway, I might have put something in the lasagna. She's like, I, I, I put a, I put X-Lax in the lasagna. Like, I put that, yeah, I just, we had it, and we've never used it, and it was going bad, and I thought, I wanted to know if it actually worked, so I might have put laxative in the lasagna, right. Poisoned by our mother. Right. We have vivid memories of this. Okay, so then, of course, yes, you know what happens. You know the punchline. Yes. Everyone, over the course of dinner, excuses themselves to go to the restroom. It works that fast. It works that fast, apparently, and so... To a T, to a man, every one of us sat down in the restroom, did what we had to do, and came back to the dinner table. We're eating dessert, and mom starts giggling. She just starts cracking up, and she can't, she's like, okay, what, what, did you put something? Like, she thinks this is so funny. And she's like, you guys all went to the bathroom? We're like, yes, mom, you put the, she's like, I was kidding about the X-Lax. It's like, I just wanted to see if, she didn't do it, she didn't, <laughs> That is a non-prank prank. The on-prank prank. She never did it. She made up. It was psychological. This is what it was like to grow up at the Canlis family dinner table. And did you really have X-Lax results? Yes. No, that's the whole point. Yes, it works. The power of the mind is an incredible thing. (laughs) Be careful what you think was kind of her motherly lesson to all of us boys. Like, the mind is a powerful thing. She's like kicking the pants.